Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. On the 21st of June, 1798, the Battle of Vinegar Hill was fought between Irish rebel forces and the British army. The battle was a turning point in the Irish Rebellion, and the site just outside Enniscorthy in County Wexford has become a place of national significance. Jonathan Miller was joined by Damien Shields of Abarta Heritage and Sam Wilson, a battlefield archaeologist, to discuss the battle and what we can uncover from battlefield sites. Good morning, I'm Jonathan Miller of Red River Group Archaeology. We're here on the side of Vinegar Hill in Enniscorthy in Wexford, County Wexford. I'm with Damien Shields of Abarta Heritage and Sam Wilson of Red River Archaeology. And we're going to be talking about battlefields. Battlefield archaeology. We're going to be talking about battlefield archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, do you guys, would you be able to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what you do? Damien, do you want to go first? Yeah, no problem. So as you say, I work... Um, with Abarta Heritage at the moment as an archaeologist and historian, so I kind of divide my time between um, both disciplines and was formerly a, a Rubicon person, as as you know. But from a battlefield archaeology perspective, um, it's an area I've been working in for about the last 20 years or so, I suppose, in an Irish context, through a range of different projects, looking at the potential and trying, trying to kind of highlights the opportunities that there are if we start to look at the quite different form of archaeology that you, you get when you look at battlefields in comparison to kind of contemporary archaeological stuff. So that's been most of my focus over 20 years, so spending time looking specifically at sites like Vinegar Hill, like the Battle of Kinsale, but also a lot of different types of conflict sites. So um, one of the things that we have at the moment is the Landscapes Revolution Project, looking at things like the archaeological imprint of the War of Independence and the Irish Civil War. So just looking at the big possibilities, which I'm sure we get into as the podcast continues, of, of what battlefield archaeology can tell you about these engagements. Thank you. And Sam? So, uh, as you said, uh, I work for Red River Archaeology, kind of day-to-day -day doing uh, commercial stuff, but kind of alongside that, I do a lot of freelance work on, on battlefield sites, uh, mostly running metal detector surveys and, and, and things like that. I'm also a trustee of the Battlefields Trust in the UK, so that's an organisation set up to kind of promote uh, protection and, and interpretation of battlefields. And there are various archaeological things that sort of ha happen alongside that. So projects of all sizes, really, uh, ranging from year-long investigations of, uh, for example, Barnet battlefields to just a few days where there's a little bit of funding to do some work on an English Civil War site, for example. So currently, the Battlefields Trust is doing a project at Stow-on-the-Wold in Gloucestershire which is the final battle of the First Civil War. And uh, we've been intermittently surveying out there as and when funding's available. And we've got some very interesting results, actually, that we still need to do a little bit more work on it. But potentially, we're looking at a slightly different story to the one that is currently understood. Oh, nice one. Sounds exciting. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks both so much for agreeing to, to talk today. Um, I suppose the reason that we're here today together, we're doing a a project nearby that relates to battlefields in the, in the sense that it's a, a development near Vinegar Hill that we've been doing a survey on. Yeah, well, I suppose we can 
give a background to, to why that project is happening and effectively because of work that, that was undertaken, a big kind of multinational team that we had a few years ago. And it's kind of timely because there's been a publication out of that just in the last week. So we all kind of came together on Vinegar Hill. Vinegar Hill is the, we can talk about the history of the battle and everything in a while, but I suppose why, why we're all here from an archaeological perspective. We were part of a, a kind of a multinational, multidisciplinary team that was put together um, to examine this battle from an archaeological perspective and a number of other perspectives like folklore and history. And Wexford County Council were keen to, to try and find out more about the battle. And so they initiated this longest day research project, which was run out of um, the 1798 Centre in Enniscorthy and had a, an awful lot of people like Jackie Hines and Dr. Ronan Flaherty um, and, and people working on it. And as an element of that, they wanted to do archaeological works on the battlefield. So that's where we came in. And they were works that were a joint project between Rubicon Heritage, Cotswold Archaeology, Sligo Institute of Technology. And so we, we did that work four years ago. And Sam, you were here for that as yeah, well. That's right. Yeah. So um, I, I suppose my involvement really was, uh, I suppose it's fair to say, to, to kind of guide the survey methodology in, yeah. the, in the first instance. So we, yeah, we had two phases of field work in two different areas of the battlefields. Um, and so my, my task really was to make sure that we were, we were applying the appropriate methodologies that were consistent with other battlefields that have been successfully surveyed and, and things like that. And providing a bit of training for some Irish archaeologists, you know, who are on the team and sort of guiding them as to the right way to do stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. Nice one. And I, I think there was a, a an unusual or a serendipitous timing overlap, wasn't there? It was like we, we arrived... On here, yeah, here. four days to the day that, that we for, left four there. Years. <laughs> four, four years. Four years to the day, <laughs> yeah. indeed, yeah. yeah. It feels like four days. But anyway, yeah, the, the um, I suppose the, 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 the reason we were doing this small project is because of the success of, of that one. Is mm. the, um, there's kind of a, a backstory to all of this where uh, back in 2007, um, actually with Rubicon um, in partnership with Eneclan, um, I oversaw for Rubicon the a big project for the Department of the Environment in Ireland where there was an effort to map all the battlefields in Ireland dating between the 8th and the 18th centuries. Um, Huge a, project. A massive project, which we all remember fondly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, 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 point, the, the idea behind that was to gather all the historical information and then to do archaeological assessments, like effectively a desk-based assessment, to try and map and locate precisely where they were on the ground so that future developments, future management, future interpretive potential, future archaeological works could all be informed by that sort of, of work. So that was my first time in Vinegar Hill, which was um, scarily almost 15 years ago. Mm. And we had highlighted areas of the, the field that were high potential. And so when the Longest Day project came along and there were monies, um, we, we kind of had a big, a good idea of where to go. And so the, the result was the largest battlefield archaeological project in the history of the Irish state with the the most impressive results of any battlefield survey in the history of the state. And so it's kind of highlighted in and around this area, the huge potential this battlefield has from an archaeological perspective. And so it's led to, we're right on the cusp, for anybody who doesn't know the area, right on the cusp of Enniscorthy, which is a growing town with an awful lot of development. And Vinegar Hill, which is the centre of this battle, um, is right by that. Um, and so it's got a lot of developmental pressures. And as things develop, conducting archaeological surveys, small surveys, to check if there is any battlefield-related material now have, have, are thankfully becoming a bit more the norm mm. than they, they maybe used to be. And so that's all due to the success 
of of the results we got four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, really, and presumably the 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 four years the project, the initial Vinegar Hill survey would be like a kind of model that could then be used elsewhere as a sort of a benchmark for best practice. Like you know, this is how to go about doing it and develop a kind of baseline of knowledge that you can yeah. then build on as a, as a management tool. Yeah, and so, something that we have to get better at, both as archaeologists in an Irish context and just generally in Ireland, is properly conducting surveys on, on these site types. Like, um, And that that's where Sam's expertise is fantastic because of all the battlefields that he's worked on um, to, to, to come into to Ireland and help us where we can all work together on, on these type of things because the, the potential is immense. Mm. And it just, you know, Everyone's a winner with it if you do it correctly. You, you find out masses of new information that's not in history books. You have massive interpretive potential on these sites for local communities to um, explore and to take advantage of. So yeah, it's it's it just it shows shows the way. And it, I mean, it's been a long, slow process, and we'd be far from the only people in Ireland working on battlefields. There, there's a number of other really good projects, but um, it's I think it'd be fair to say it's yet to catch light in the imagination of. Uh, of the Irish archaeological community in a, in a broader sense, and that's something that hopefully will improve as time goes by. Are you both on the same page in terms of how you would define battlefield archaeology, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose battlefield archaeology really is a subdiscipline of conflict archaeology, which is in itself a subdiscipline of archaeology. So, battlefields is uh, battlefield archaeology is a very narrow field, really, which is the examination of the archaeological signature left on a battlefield. That that would be my view of exactly what it is. And, and that's looking at principally unstratified material that's left in the ground, so musket balls and bits and pieces that are fired during a battle or dropped or broken, and they just sit in the topsoil ready to be then collected through systematic metal detecting. But it can also incorporate things like uh, field defences, stuff like that, negative features that might occasionally occur, possible grave pits and things like that. Uh, but that all has to get tied into an understanding of the historic landscape. So there is a, a certain landscape archaeology element to it, as well as a, a kind of more traditional historical element, looking at uh, documents and accounts of the battles and stuff like that. And all you're then trying to do is recreate as much as you can the historic landscape and your understanding of how the battle was conducted and then taking the archaeological information, you sort of put that into the historic landscape and you can you can therefore see if what the accounts are telling you matches up with the archaeological evidence or if it differs and, and perhaps why that might be. It made me think of there was one point where you were talking the other days about the, there was a, a reference to guys setting up a gun in a road that hadn't been specifically known in terms of the sort of historic record, but it was kind yeah. of proven archaeologically. I was trying to figure a way of kind of bringing that into it, but I don't know what the question to ask would be yeah. that wouldn't, like, well, suggesting I didn't already know what well, I was trying yeah. to ask you a question to prompt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, it shows it here as well, like, the type of detail that you're getting. Like, it, it, if you want to take some Irish examples of where it can demonstrate it. Um, and I, I, I think it'd be fair to just say as well at the start that it does, the type of works that have, are beginning to show, both in Ireland and nationally, that what Sam's showing, that th this can kind of, adds significant new detail to the historical elements um, and look at looking at that combined approach has had and has had an impact like it's had an impact there's been some good archaeological work done by staff of mclaughlin in and around vinegar hill for example um, and yvonne whitty down in new ross um, has done work that's that's shown that even in a big new ross is a big urban town that had a battle in 1798 
Um, back in 2007, when we were doing the Battlefields project, we identified small patches of green areas within the town where there was potential for stuff to be found. As a result of that, Yvonne did a survey when there was a pipeline going through, found material there that was from the Battle of seven, the 1798 Battle, which we then analysed. Um, and it has shown, in what's a, it's a well-known battle, people know the general outline of it but there is one attack and i won't go into big detail on one attack that goes in in the morning in that town that doesn't kind of get driven home and there's always been a question as to why that mm. didn't get driven home but the archaeology shows that there was actually an an artillery piece located at at this spot that hadn't it's not on any of the accounts it's not mentioned anywhere but it, we know it was there because the archaeology shows it was there yeah uh, and these guys who were attacking that morning would have effectively been running straight into the muzzle of this gun so yeah. That's a good reason to run away, um, if, if you ask me. Um, so, so like, that's what it can add. It can, and it's it's shown that internationally, like the, the kind of big, if you like, start starter point, the start mark marker of battlefield archaeology generally is seen as a little bighorn um, work that was done by Doug Scott um, in America, the kind of Custer's Last Stand, the Seventh Cavalry stuff, and that's a battle from the eighteen seventies, of which, even though people falsely say that nobody survived that plenty of native americans survived it um, and also actually a significant proportion of the seven cavalry survived it as well but in any event the the it's demonstrated there through that work um where you can follow individual soldiers across that battlefield who lost their lives there because of the signature the bullets coming out of their rifles that mm. that it can just add this whole new layer of how battlefields develop but i think where it really really adds a huge amount is it immediately personalizes something when you find this material mm. like you're not looking at a historical account that is some kind of high-ranking officer is telling you what what happened you're seeing a bullet that was dropped by an ordinary individual or a bullet that struck an ordinary mm. individual and you immediately begin to conceptualize what happened in these kind of very small spaces yeah. in, in terms of what was going on so it, it it's it's quite it's almost visceral archaeology and what it can reveal. Like, yeah. Apart from the very fact that you can kind of go for stuff often hundreds of years old and go, well, we know this was deposited between in this five-hour period <laughs> on this very specific day, yeah. I mean, which is really, it's incredible. in our profession, is remarkable. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Yeah, making something that's so broad-reaching over an entire landscape, covering square kilometers down to individual actions or individual mm. people, yeah, it's, it, is, it is incredible. Especially when you're talking, certainly in this case, 200 years, and it's um, yeah, it's incredible. So one of the questions that's here is how do battlefield sites change through the millennia and centuries? Like I know from what you guys have been telling me about Vinegar Hill that this landscape is virtually unchanged in terms of the, the, the features, the, the field boundaries, and so on. I presume that's quite unusual. Is is that well? I, I, I don't know. Is it or would that be? Common? I mean. Yeah, yes, I know. It really, it, it really depends on the site, to be honest with you, and exactly where it was, and any kind of more modern pressures that have uh, that have been placed on it. Um, but typically, the further back in time you go, the more change there has been, and therefore the more difficult it, it is. Um, and uh, and of course, the further back in time you go, also the uh, fewer accounts you have, the less certain of the general location that you are, the, the more possible alternatives you have. Mm -hmm. um, but the real, the real shift, I think, um, it comes with firearms, basically. Of course, firearms are generally shooting bullets made of lead, and those are quite easy to find with a metal detector. And as you go on through time, you know, into the 17th and 18th century, you get more and more and more firearms on the battlefield. 
So the the lead bullet, the musket ball, or the pistol ball, or whatever, is going to be your most common artifact type by far. Yeah. Once you get back far enough that they're not using guns, or it's a battle where guns do exist, but they just don't have any at that time, or whatever, it becomes a lot more difficult to find stuff. There's just far fewer objects in the ground. Mm. You're dealing with a relatively small number. For for example, um, the Battle of Bosworth, 1485, when the big projects ran there, uh, they managed to locate the true site of the battle through this scatter of late medieval round shot, lead and uh, lead composite rounds. There were something like 40-odds by the end of the survey, I think. And that gave you a nice scatter, clearly where the battlefield was. You can't really argue with that. But if you removed all of those, they were really left with very few objects that were of the right period and the right type. One of the crucial giveaways was, of course, the boar badge, which is Richard III's sort of symbol. Um, But again, if you sort of ignore that, the the actual number of military finds was very, very limited. So if you consider that all battles, you know, sort of earlier medieval and, and back tend to just have those few objects on them really then the chances of finding them are pretty slim or it requires a lot of work mm. um it would I've, nearly be sort of equal to what would be their background anyway you know, almost then that's the difficult thing because that again you don't have that many distinctively military fixtures and fittings mm. you have bits of weapons and so on but, but in terms of like belts and buckles and things like that they're all exactly the same as civilian you, you don't yeah. get military equipment in that sense so yeah it can become very difficult particularly if you're dealing with anywhere near any medieval settlement yeah. because you get usually a, a general halo of medieval finds around medieval settlements but then out in the fields as well where they're manuring them and taking out their rubbish you also get finds then transported out into the fields a bit further away yeah. so it is quite difficult of course, if you go back far enough, then you start to get lead bullets again because you get lead sling bullets right, okay. on, on Roman and like Greek sites and things. So it's a sort of interesting one where yeah, there's <laughs> lead bullets the that are very ancient and then this big long gap where sort of there wasn't a lot of that stuff um, and then you get lead bullets again. Right. One of the questions that people always ask is about finding arrowheads and things like that on medieval battles. Of course, there were lots of archers on these battlefields and uh, shooting thousands and thousands of, thousands of arrows and... I mean, that's a very good question. There are a couple of issues with that in that in certain soil conditions, the iron will simply not survive because it will be churned around by ploughing and things like that and broken down into such tiny pieces that the, the arrowheads basically cease to exist or the chemical signature of the the sort of chemical composition, the pH, if you like, of the soil will just contribute to breaking them down as well. So that's one of the problems. The other problem is just the practicality of recovering them in that if you start detecting fields in all-metal mode to recover these ferrous objects, you also pick up all the other iron that's in the fields. Mm. And in every field, basically across probably Europe, you've, at least, you've got uh, bits of tractor, you, you've got nails galore where people have put up and taken down fences over the centuries, just all manner of iron rubbish, basically, that's mm. out there. And if you then spend all your time searching for all of these iron objects it will quite often take so long that you can only cover a tiny little part of the battlefield. So it really becomes a toss-up of coverage of the ground, time, and so on. If you've got a battlefield in your back garden and you've got 10 years to look at it, then maybe you'll do the entire thing in all metal because you've just got the time to play with. But the reality is that there's not often a lot of funding for these kind of projects. And so 
time is ultimately money and, yeah. and you have to make the best use of your, the, the time and the money that you, you have to do it. And invariably that means searching for the things that are easier to find, like the lead bullets, bits of uh, copper alloy, you know, buckles and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like I've slightly gone off tangent. Uh, no, no, that's on, really on interesting. It's, the, it's, um, uh, the question there, but... Uh, no, it's, 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 um, it's really interesting. I think certainly the, the, the survey that we've done over the last couple of days, I'd, I, I knew the concept of metal detector surveys. I'd mm. processed the results of ones in graphics and stuff, but in terms of actually being on the ground doing it and having a go with the, the detector, I was kind of, I was impressed with how sensitive the detectors works. Again, it's something that you have, I have an idea of how they work, but again, just actually using them, it was, it was way more precise than I'd anticipated, but also way more time consuming in terms of the, the actual process of, like say, just filtering between yeah. if it's all metal, just the amount of material. That's it it in can the be very time-consuming, and, and I mean the the site that we've just been on. Of course, there were a lot. There was quite a lot of rubbish that wasn't even iron. It was stuff that gave a really good signal that mm. would be consistent with something like a musket ball, um, which makes it even harder. Which makes it even harder, absolutely. Um, but uh, a detector is very much the sort of thing that the more money you spend on it, the better it is, really. Yeah. Um, and, and that can be a problem on archaeological sites where, where people who don't necessarily have the experience or, or the equipment to do a survey properly, if they've got a very cheap detector or something like that. But I think the, the thing that we found was certainly that the, the detector was one factor, but the, the skill of the person using it was way more important in terms it of... It requires how, a lot of practice, how really. How fast you were compared to Damon and I. I mean, that, that's, that's simply just practice. It really is. And... and there are very good, very experienced metal detectorists out there who are just very, very efficient at mm. what they do, and, and they, they really understand how their detector works and so on. Um, the, it's a difficulty when you're trying to get volunteers and so on involved in projects. that you, Ultimately, you, you want to get local people involved and so on, but uh, it's not a skill that you can just pick up and be good at. It's mm. not. It's not really like excavation that someone can say, right, take this mattock and just reduce that that area there by 10 centimeters or, or dig out that ditch or whatever you know that that's a relatively easy skill to pick up yeah it's, it's difficult to be very good and competent at it but you know a volunteer can pick it up you know the basics quite quickly but it just it requires a bit of practice with a metal detector and that's all it is and and it's then of course having the opportunity to practice as well yeah and i think that's that's especially relevant in in ireland because it is like the, the, well the difference between the uk and ireland is that in ireland it's completely illegal to do metal detecting without a license. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, well, I'm, I'm not. I, I don't know. Like you'd know better than I would the, the sort of specifics and. Well, like it's it's not licensed basically, um, and really the only hoop to jump through is that you have to have the landowner's permission to this go. This is on. in the UK. In yeah. the UK, yeah, yeah. You have to have the landowner's permission to uh, go on their land and detect. All of the fines that might come out of that land are still the property of the landowner. Um, although with agreement, they'll, you know, might let the detectorist have them or, or, or whatever. Mm. There is, of course, the portable antiquities scheme in the UK, which has been exceptionally good in encouraging people to record their fines. And there's a huge database now of some really amazing fines across the entire country. But that really comes down to, I suppose, the individual wanting to record them. Um, you, you will still get many people who will not go anywhere near re recording their fines or reporting them. 
Yeah, it, it, it can, I, I think it can be a little bit of a free-for-all, particularly when you do have big detector rallies and stuff like that. Mars and more. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, some battlefields have been have had rallies on them which have been quite damaging to the archaeological... Was there one just in the last couple of days? I saw something somewhere that was... I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know the facts for that, Maybe. but it was but something somewhere. The, 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 um, these events are unfortunately run almost full profit, you know, from the, for the organisers and things like that. So it's a difficult one. My, my, my feeling is that moving to a more regulated system would be better mm. in the UK, um, but I'm not sure if you can ever claw it back mm. as you were for, for it, from its current position because um, the legislation in ireland is it, it, it's powerful but i think it's again the same thing where it's just not widely known yeah and it's an interesting discussion point um like as sam has has been going through there like detectors are a really important archaeological tool really really important archaeological tool um and here the law rightly in my view is is that you cannot prospect for, with the intention of finding objects anywhere in the Republic of Ireland without a license to do so. The, the background to that really is that objects that are found here are deemed to be the property of the Irish people. And the state on behalf of the Irish people, the National Museum on behalf of the state and the Irish people is the owner of all archaeological objects, which I think is right and proper. Um, and and it's you know it raises its head every few years. Um, it's definitely raised its head again about um, a kind of a campaign to try and get wider, like if you like, access for detectorists for hobbyists to to go on sites. And you see them increasingly around Ireland. Um, but I think so, so. Effectively, really, what it means is that only archaeologists can get a detection license. And I think battlefields in Ireland are the the absolutely perfect example of why it's important that it remains licensed. Because if you go onto a battlefield, and we experienced a bit of it here because there's been a legal detection on Vinegar Hill, which has probably impacted a number of the areas. But so if we take Vinegar Hill as an example of it, so I think battlefield archaeology offers a really good example of why it's really important that the licensing system stays in place. So hobbyist detectorists in Ireland might go and say, well, I'm not in the middle of a ring fort. I'm not near um, any castles or anything like that when I'm detecting. So what does it matter what I'm picking up? Uh, we, when we were doing our work here, um, saw a couple of fields that were impacted because there had been illegal metal detection here where people are just going into the field and they might wander across it and they'll pick up their few musket balls or whatever. And I know it's the case because the National Museum of Ireland is filled with material that was taken from illegal detectorists. Military sites, barracks, battlefields are enormously popular with illegal detection here. But it is annihilating um, a unique form of record when they are illegally detected or illicitly detected detected without a license because if you come to a battlefield like this and um we'll, we'll go on to the 1798 and the battle here but the entire modus operandi of of battlefield archaeology and what it offers when you're getting these lead bullet scatters is we don't just come out here with detectors and wander around the field aimlessly there is um, transect set up so everything is done in a way that's very systematic so that we know the proportional spread of material across a field. We don't come out here with just detectorists. We also bring a surveyor with a GPS who can um, and who does pinpoint every single thing we find to millimeter accuracy. And what that means is when we're finished the detection survey, we can go back and have an exceptionally detailed plan 
of what's found. On top of that, all the material we get is analysed by specialists who specialise in things like bullets, specialise in things like artillery. And so let's take Vinegar Hill here. If this, some of the areas that we had had been hit by, say, people who, who weren't doing it archaeologically, they would have ripped out colossal amounts of evidence because what we found and the patterns in which we found it allow us to precisely follow the government attack straight up towards the top of this hill. We know where they were standing. We know where they were dropping bullets. We know where they were firing. We know who the people they were firing against where they were standing. Mm -hmm. We know where artillery was wheeled up into the line and discharged into the faces of United Irishmen. We know exactly where all that happened to within a few meters mm -hmm. because of the way we did it and because of the special analysis that was on. We know some of the units that were here. We know some of the troop types that were here all because of that. And that information it comes out in things like the publications that's there for everyone. It'll hopefully in the future be an interpretive panel for everyone who comes to this hill to enjoy and to then experience what it was like um, for us as we discovered this. They mm. can stand in the same spot now and know exactly what happened in very specific fields on mm. the 21st of June 1798 because of that. But if it had just been a bunch of lads who were coming up here on weekends detecting and they end up with a bucket of bullets... Mm. And even if they can say, well, I kind of found it in the bottom left-hand corner of that field, that's no good. You mm. have destroyed the archaeological record. You have destroyed that history. Yeah. And I think that showing that on battlefields is the way to really transmit the importance of a licensing system. Um, and I, like, I mean, I think you know, people should be allowed to get involved under an archaeological banner when it's done with an archaeologist who has an archaeological license, who has an archaeological detection license. I'm all for more com uh, community work, like we did community work here. It was all community-driven. Um, but it's not for individuals, in my view, to go off and decide that they're going to whack a battlefield and they're going to pull up hundreds of musket balls over the years and mm. destroy that record for the rest of us so that we might never know the details of, of very specific things. That's That really is all of our shared heritage. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. To, to be able to take a single musket ball in, in its context with all the other musket balls that you pull out and be able to say there was a line of soldiers marching along here and you, you could probably work out what kind of regularity they were dropping you know, like for every third ball uh, or every three balls that they shot there was maybe one that they were dropping just from you know just the act of going over uneven ground and mm. trying to I don't know what their firing rate was but um, you know in terms two, of like two or three shots a minute probably yeah so you could sort of presumably say you know they were based mm. on what we know of the way that they fought they spent maybe you know 15 minutes or whatever walking up here attacking these guys there, there are some great evidences as well on on various sites that uh, of very minute little moments of uh individual stress and panic and things like that so occasionally you you'll see a bullet where uh it has this little dished indentation in one on one side and it's very distinctive, and that's basically where the soldier has been ramming the bullet down down their weapon, and they've just rammed it really hard, probably repeatedly several times with the ramrod. Entirely unnecessary to actually load the weapon, you know, but they've really like rammed it home as hard as they they can, and you see the indentation left by the ramrod. In that's what for, forms this little sort of dish, uh, and it's just that little moment that tells you that that soldier was actually pretty damn scared at that time yeah. you know and he was in a pretty Stress. stressful situation yeah. and it's, it just it, it personalizes it like Damien mm. was saying earlier even what we got here with the, the the drop bullets along the line where where you can kind of imagine somebody fumbling their cartridge oh, as yeah. they're standing 30 or 40 yards away from the opposing line but they're they're nervous you can imagine hands shaking 
in combat and they're dropping their cartridge and having to put yeah. another one in to fire. Mm-hmm. Like it's all of that is just a very individual moment in time that just it utterly transforms the way you look at very small patches of land. But it does other stuff here, like in the 1798 context, and, and it goes back to what Sam was saying about the, the kind of whole landspect aspect. It, and it, it's another element of why the detection has to be like one arm of a, of a wider kind of analysis of these type of landscapes. Our work here showed that all the ditches and everything that you can still see off the top of this hill were all here. And they were massively important defensive features. Mm-hmm. Um, I always refer to ditches as like the great forgotten monument in Irish archaeology because when you're looking at the Irish War of Independence or even mid-1640s battles um, and even going back to battles in the Elizabethan period, um, ditches that often can still exist are hugely important lo- locations. And, and one of the things that our survey here showed was because of where we were getting and because of how we were recording the material we now know how for example the government troops were using this landscape to align themselves so there's a laneway that comes up to the top of the hill here in vinegar hill still exists two ditches on either side of the of of the road on one side very little in in way of firing going on and on the other side a massive amount and and what we know about armies in those days is that men went in to action um, shoulder to shoulder um, in in ranks and they came along in a line and they marched very slowly and they tended to try and orient themselves on something because it can be very it's very difficult to maintain a line if you ever line up about 40 or 50 people shoulder to shoulder and then just even just get them to walk forward and stay keep their their line together it can be very hard and it was very important to keep the line together because you needed the, the shock of their fire being delivered mm. together um, and so they often use, all the way through right into the late 19th century, they use landscape features to align themselves on. And as a result of where we were getting the material, we now know the exact ditch that the government forces aligned their right-hand side on so that they could march slowly up the hill towards the, the United Irishman at the top of it, which is incredible. I mean, it, it, it shows us the importance of this ditch, the fact it was there, like nobody should touch it. <laughs> and it just gives you that kind of sense of them making that decision. Mm-hmm. You see that hedge down there, we align on that and we go up, up there. And mm-hmm. it, like, it's just it's just an incredible level of detail. None of this is in any of the histories. We don't have any of that level of detail in mm-hmm. any of them, but archeology span gives it to us yeah. when it's done in a professional manner, in a manner that's recorded and fully licensed. So, yeah, Sam, could you tell us some of your personal experiences of, of battlefield archaeology over the years? Yeah, so I, I've been fortunate enough to be doing battlefield archaeology uh, for, I suppose, about 10 years or so. And, and that's involved lots of surveys of various various sort of scales and, um, you know, from very, very small little jobs that are related to development to big, long, long projects. Um, so I, I'll touch on a couple of of the more interesting ones. The first one was, uh, I mentioned earlier, is the, the Stow on the Wold sites, and that's that's under the auspices of the Battlefields Trust. And what we were doing there really was, uh, there was a lot of local interest in the battle, and, and it was, again, a, a community-driven thing that really got this project off the ground to start with. And we've got the traditional site at Stow on the Wold, which, when you look at the accounts and so on, it doesn't, doesn't quite make a lot of sense as to exactly where it is and... and 
where the armies were coming along the road and, and the sort of nature of all of that, because basically one force was chasing the other. And this idea that they all sort of moved off of the road onto this landscape to have a battle and then moved, it, it all sort of didn't make a lot of sense. So there was an alternative site proposed uh, by Dr. Glenn Ford based on some work he'd done looking at the site. Uh, looking, looking at the documents and the maps and so on. And so really we started out wanting to basically do some pilot work looking at the traditional site and this alternative site proposed by, by Glenn. So we did a week or two's work down there quite a while ago now and looked at areas of both the traditional site and the, uh, the, the alternative site. Didn't find a single thing <laughs> not, well, not a single thing from the battle. We found yeah. a, a Roman coin, which was about the most interesting thing, uh, and, and really not a lot of anything else. So, of course, at that point, you then go, hmm, that's confusing. We, we actually thought that this alternative site was pretty, pretty good. Maybe we go back to the drawing board. So then, again, you revisit all the accounts. There aren't that many for Stowe either, but you, you revisit everything and you re-look at it and you go maybe actually we're dealing with something that's a lot closer into the town mm. because there's a little turn of phrase that um, I can't remember the exact phrasing in the account, but it, it implies basically that they fought this battle and then they just went straight into Stowe, mm. into the town. It, it kind of implies that they're pretty close to each other, basically, that they're almost just outside the town and then they, they go straight back in afterwards and there's a, there's a little bit of sort of skirmishing in the town and that's all where it kind of all ends, really. Mm. And uh, the alternative site was closer to the town than the traditional site. The traditional site is probably a couple of miles outside the town, more or less. Um, so we then came back with this hypothesis as maybe actually we're dealing with something even closer. And we started looking at some areas and, and lo and behold, we started finding some Civil War material. Uh, so, some musket balls, some things called slugs which are basically musket balls that are hammered into little cylinders so they fit smaller weapons oh, cavalry okay. traditionally use them in their uh, carbines and things uh, and and one or two other things that were indicative of, of a battle of that period so based on those results we came up with this new hypothesis that basically there, there's a little knoll almost next to the road and, and the the theory we're now working to is that's the probable position that the royalist army actually drew up for battle um, what we now need to do is go back again one final time and test that hypothesis properly by surveying another couple of fields in that area. Great. But all the evidence is pointing towards the battle being in a slightly different location, far closer to the town than, than we thought. Um, and that is verified. Well, it's, sort of in, it's consistent with the, the accounts. It's just that it's, it's so close that it's actually... Exactly. It's closer than people would even thought, imagine that basically. You, yeah. yeah. So what we're trying to do now is really confirm that and, and also try and confirm what part of the battle we found you know is it is it a flank action we know there are cavalry operating on the flanks or, or is it the part of the route scatter where the royalists are being chased back into the town mm -hmm. um so that's still to still to be concluded really but some really interesting results there mm -hmm. uh, potentially the other project that's um something i'm very kind of proud to be part of is waterloo uncovered and I'm uh, fortunate enough to be a supervisor on that project out at the Waterloo battlefield in Belgium. And that's, that's through this charity called Waterloo Uncovered. And, and basically it's set up to um, provide help and assistance to modern military veterans who, are, who, who have been through basically a tough time based on their modern service. And that, that could be things like PTSD or, or, or physical injuries and, and stuff like that. And 
basically every summer, although we've missed a couple because of COVID now, but every summer we take a big group of veterans out to Belgium, along with some students and some mental health professionals and all sorts of other people, as well as archaeologists. Mm. And we do archaeological work on the battlefield of Waterloo. And uh, it's phenomenally, it's been awesome, to be honest. You know, we, we've had some phenomenally good results, um, archaeologically speaking, and, and just to see the positive impact it can have on people who yeah. have been having a bit of a tough time it, it is very you know it's heartwarming and it, it makes me proud to be part of it really yeah. and it shows more widely this phenomena of how useful archaeology can be as a mental health tool mm-hmm. not not just for military veterans but you know we're in the situation now where we've had this pandemic we've had health workers who i'm sure have been you know really stretched beyond their limits in many cases having to deal with all this stuff who i'm sure are suffering similar issues you know from having to work on a and e wards with people who are dying of covid it's it's going to be a similar experience so i'm sure there's a lot of room that archaeology can sort of move into to try try and help people that aren't just military veterans are are effectively veterans of other traumatic events um so yeah, anyway, we, we've looked at all sorts of bits of the Waterloo battlefield. There, there's still lots more to do. Um, that was a big battle, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, if you heard of it, Damien, yeah. <laughs> I've it's, heard of uh, it. <laughs> if, if you get the train up through Reading, you... you uh... <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and just... I didn't actually know it was in Belgium. But... <laughs> okay. Where, where did you think it was? <laughs> Somewhere in London. <laughs> so anyway, yes. Um, I'll take that out after. I'll edit that out. We, we can edit that out. There's hundred. <laughs> uh, yeah, and 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 so that that's really very much ongoing at this point. Um, obviously, because of COVID, things have been a bit different. There there have been more sort of online based things and and various online lectures and and stuff like that. For people have still been able to get involved to a certain degree. Hopefully, we'll be able to go back out there next year. Uh, we've just started looking at a few new parts of the battlefield that are perhaps less well documented uh, in terms of understanding exactly what went on there. Mm. Um, so lots and lots of potential. As Damien said earlier, um, and just to briefly t- touch on that regarding the accounts and, and how things can give you new information, even a battle as widely written about as Waterloo you know, and, and there's so many memoirs of people that were there, so many books written about it by historians. Even there, we can find new information about the battle that only archaeology is telling us. Yeah. For example, at Hougamont Farm, which is the, the farm that's on the Allied right flank, and it's the scene of heavy fighting for most of the day. We know from the accounts that the French brought up howitzers to shell the farm at close range, and that's what set some of the buildings on fire and uh, you know, burn some of them down. But we also now know from the archaeology that they brought up normal cannon and were raking the walls with grape shot, basically, or canister shot at very close range because we found dozens and dozens of pieces of it alongside the wall. Right. So that's a new little bit of information and tells us something of the the French tactical approach to the battle. Presumably they discovered that it was being quite stubbornly defended and they brought up this artillery to just try and keep the defenders' heads down and kill them if possible. Uh, and while they were firing, just get the French to leg it across this open ground and try and get over the wall. So that, again, is a little insight into a tiny little part of a very big battle, yeah. which only the archaeology really can tell us in any... It, it can only confirm it because you, you've you got the objects in the ground. You, yeah. you can't really argue with 
how they got there ultimately. Goodness. So it's very, very interesting. Damien, do you want to cover any of your favourite personal experiences of battlefield archaeology or Yeah, well Vinegar Hill would be high on the list, I have to say. Oh for sure, yeah. The um the the I suppose here, I mean a lot of the work that we started I started about 20 years ago when um, myself and a colleague of mine, Paul O'Keefe, set up the Kinsale Battlefield Project, the big 1601 um, Elizabethan siege and battle down there, um, which is kind of an, an immortal battle in Irish history. But we uh, we started very much from the no battlefields in Ireland had any level of protection um, at that juncture. And so a lot of our aims and have been for much of the last two decades have been trying to highlight that actually there is a lot of archaeology here and we need to protect it. Um, but we have had some great work, like Paul did LIDAR analysis there. Like We, 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 we identified the Elizabethan English camps, um, like one of the camps that Paul did LIDAR analysis of showed that the, the, the main English camp at Kinsale was bigger than the contemporary walled city of Derry. Wow. Uh, so it was one of the biggest towns in Ireland at the time, but none of that had any archaeological protection. We didn't know the limits of it. Um, you, you've worked on that site yourself, yeah, yeah. geophysics. We did, we did a bit of geophysics. But um, the, the, um, we allowed, as a result, that has archaeological protection. So identifying the siege camps and things around there have been a big thing. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the work, this is the biggest survey that's undertaken. Other people have done really good work as well, like Paul Logue and Jim O'Neill up on the Yellow Ford 1598 battle. Some, some really good like small scale work to white it's effectively our what we've been trying to do is because we're a bit behind uk we're a bit behind america still is to try and identify and highlight this stuff to kind of go look <laughs> this is here it can tell us an awful lot mm-hmm. um and so some of that i suppose the most poignant stuff i ever worked on was a mass grave from 1642 in carrick mines which is the only um mass grave that's been confirmed to a precise event relating to any engagements in Ireland and that's the um, uh, when the the Carrickmines Castle fell in March 1642 um, and the inhabitants were were slaughtered and we found a mass grave with women and children and men in it Um, and some of them had sewn coins into their clothes to try and hide it before they got killed Mm. Um, and the osteological analysis demonstrated that they were killed in in hot blood that they weren't killed in a systematic fashion some of them were on their knees being struck over the head with swords others were being um hit with blunt force instruments probably reversed muskets um some of them were being shot so it suggests as a kind of a chaotic scenario where 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 troops are flooding into the castle and they're being killed um as that happens rather than a systematic execution but so that sort of stuff. I mean, the Battlefields Project is certainly a huge highlight because we, we mapped like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of sites. And it's things like the work at Vinegar Hill and the work at New Ross have begun to bring to fruition the, what we were highlighting there because the archaeology is emerging. Mm-hmm. But it's probably a good time to kind of talk just for a couple of minutes about actually what happened here. Mm. Um, I've kind of said what we found effectively, which was lines of advance and retreat and everything, but I suppose it, it, it would be unfair for people who don't know any of the context not to know anything about what happened here when we're doing the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so we are on this the top of this hill with these huge panoramic views, but um, on the 21st of June, 1798, it was the, camp, the main camp in County Wexford of the United Irishmen. So it was filled with thousands of... of you would call them United Irishmen troops, but they had all been civilians a month previously. Um, it was a, a rising um, that had been, if, if you like, inspired by particularly the events of the French Revolution um, and and the American um, Revolution before it. Um, they were seeking an independent government 
Um, and it was a um, intended to be a, a nationwide rising. Um, there was also risings. Um, a lot of Presbyterians in Ulster were involved in the rising as well. There were uh, rising in Ulster. Um, but most of the rest of the rising, I think, was you could describe it as being defective. So the, the, a lot of the leaders were arrested in Dublin just before it happened. And so Wexford rose with incredible vigour in late May 1798. Um, but, but not much of the rest of the country came out to the same extent. Um, and so they, they had some initial victories, had, had attempted to break out of the county, but were defeated at places like New Ross and Arklow. Um, and so the situation as of 21st of June, the, the government forces had kind of mopped up other elements of United Irish re rebellion in other parts of the country, in places like Meath and Kildare. And they began to concentrate all their focus on Wexford. And so effectively, the entire county was in United Irishmen hands until about five government columns started to move in with the intention of having, if you like, a, a, a final decisive engagement with the um, with the United Irishmen. And this is where that happened. Um, and so we're overlooking the river here and, and Enniscorthy below us. And one government column was moving in in that direction. And there were, there were a, a, another four coming in on this side of the hill. So the intent was to surround the hill and catch everyone here. And as we, we were talking about the ditches and everything, that's where the United Irishmen set up their defensive lines. People come to this hill and they think, oh, the battle was on the top of the hill. The, the, the United Irishmen outer positions were actually a good bit off the hill. Unfortunately, a significant, one of the most important elements of that is currently being developed um, quite, quite, quite insensitively, it must be said, in terms of the, the view from the hill. But in any event, um, the, uh, the United Irishmen were holding this outer perimeter um, and all these different columns began to converge um, and on the early morning, effectively at dawn on the 21st of June, they began to barrage, the government forces began to barrage positions here. And again, effectively, this is designed to terrify what our non-trained troops, what our women and, and children, families are up here. Um, and for two hours, these shells are screaming down on top of this position. So you have to imagine immediately when you start thinking about it, you start thinking of the psychological impact of that, this kind of idea of softening up your target. Mm. Um, and a key moment early on comes when they, they, they launched their attack after, after that couple of hours um, in the morning. Um, and the they, artillery, they managed to get into a position. I'm actually looking directly at it, a, a townland boundary where um, United Irishmen were, were aligned and the government forces managed to move an artillery piece in and it allowed them to, to carry out what was called enfilading fire, where effectively you're firing down a line. In other, in other words, the guys were all behind the ditch, but the, the, the cannon, the artillery piece was side onto them and was able to rake their entire line. And they're, they're supposed to have killed about 50 or 60 men along that defensive line, which kind of causes that element of the line to collapse. Uh, but in the meantime, with columns converging from three sides and the hill moving up, there's heavy fighting going on behind us in Enniscorthy that's coming down towards Enniscorthy Bridge. The United Irishmen are desperately trying to hold back the government assaults in order to allow as many people as possible to, to, to get away. Um, and eventually these slow plodding lines of Redcoat militia, who, it must be said, are largely Irish. <laughs> um, we have this idea of it's the English versus the Irish. Uh, most of the militia who are here are Irish. There are other interesting units, like there are German green jacketed riflemen on the hill, really interesting um, different components of troops. But it, these red, red coats start to march slowly uh, 
uh, and inexorably up the hill. And the area where we found the most archaeology um, is, is that area where I said we could we could determine um, the lines of advance. Um, and it's they come up over a smaller hill um, in the vicinity called Drumgould and into a saddle. And what we have is these red coats marching up, aligning themselves on this laneway, marching straight for the, the direct top of the hill. Um, they are firing into the faces of United Irishmen who are fighting hard back, it would seem, to try and hold them off. Um, as I say, they're bringing artillery up. They are spraying um, this sand shot, which is effectively like a big shotgun blast into the faces, be disintegrating um, people from a few yards um, into their faces. Coming up the hill, we have evidence for, for what's likely hand-to-hand -hand fighting, hand-to-hand -hand combat with bits of broken weaponry and stuff in one area. Uh, and this is... The, the climax of the battle is what we have um, across these two, two and a half fields. Um, and eventually it does end with government victory. They do take the hill. But um, one of the columns, there was another column that was supposed to seal off the only real escape route um, for the United Irishmen and um, under the command of a general called Needham. And he was um, late and has forevermore been known to history as the late General Needham. And as a result of him being late and... What you would say are the heroic actions I I would I would put forward the United Irishmen rearguard to hold back the government forces. It allows the bulk of the people who were up here, and it was about ten thousand people, ten fifteen thousand even, um, to get off the hill. So there are high casualties, um, hundreds, probably thousands of people die here, um, and the rebellion is broken after this. Like Wexford is effectively fallen, but it continues. There's the odd small battle afterwards. Um, and the French, of course, landed, but two months too late on the west coast. Um, and after some initial success, they, they too were defeated. And that kind of brings to a close the rebellion. But, um, I mean, it's synonymous with Wexford, and this location is synonymous with that rebellion. Irish people emigrated all over the world. There are vinegar hills all over the world. They are all named after this battle. Mm. Um, and it becomes a huge marker for later Republicans in 1848 and 1898 and into 1916. But 1798 is almost seen as an, um, a starting point for, if you like, modern nationalism. Mm. Uh, and so it's it's become a major part of Irish history. But And that's why it was so remarkable to find the moments um, that had such a resonance all the way down um, into, into, into modern times. Um, and it's something we're still working on. I mean, we're still finishing off work. That's, that's the other thing about these. These are very long projects. We're still doing analysis and all the material we found all those years ago because there's so many different elements of analysis you can do. Mm -hmm. um, and still finding out new things about that work. So it shows the importance of it from an archaeological perspective. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Damien. Would you guys just be able to tell people where they can follow you on Twitter or Instagram or um, sure. any other bits of social media, Sam? Jeff? Um yeah, if you're uh, particularly interested in the battlefield stuff that I get up to, then uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Conflict Archeo. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Irish ACW, and um, you can also check out IrishAmericansOfWar.com and LandscapesOfRevolution.com and AbartaHeritage.ie. Brilliant! Thanks so much, guys. It's been really brilliant, really enjoyable, and um, thanks for your time. <laughs>